A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. This is a great story. Heber J. Grant was a stake president at age 24, and he was made the stake president out in Tooele. And a couple of his brethren came out, and he bore testimony, and it wasn't the strongest testimony on the face of the earth. He used the word believe instead of know. And so <laughs> it caused a discussion between these two brethren, and it just so happened that the president of the church was out there, Joseph F. Smith and John Taylor, who was at the president of the church. And Joseph F. Smith, who you would expect, criticized him because he didn't say he knew. And John Taylor laughed. And he said, oh, he knows as much as anybody does. He's just saying it differently. Well, Heber J. Grant is eventually called to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And he has not had an experience that he believes qualifies him to be. And he... Every time he bears his testimony in conference, he said, I hear in the back of my mind, you really don't know. And so he was to the point where he didn't want to be an apostle anymore. And uh, he was on a trip on his horse, and he goes away from the main group, and he has a vision. And in this vision, he is told that he or many other people, could have been an apostle, but he was, and he better do a good job of it. And you've now been given the experience so that you can say you know. And quit so, whining. And, quit, quit, quit <laughs> whine. and so he's now qualified. But I, what I mean by that is, as a stake president, as a bishop, as a church leader, is there anything worse than not knowing or being spiritually qualified and having to play a role. And so you don't want to put the bar too high. You don't want to say that our leaders have to be perfect. You don't want to say that they have to heal every time. You don't want to say that every prophecy they utter is going to come true because you are setting yourself up for heartbreak on all sides. And so if if this is what we believe about our leaders, our leaders are going to be very, very careful to say nothing. <laughs> I mean, this is where it leads. And so I hope that there is a sense of forgiveness, a sense of reality about these things, because there's no, 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 no question in my mind that revelation comes, that angels appear, these things happen. But there's no question in my mind that sometimes they don't. And that doesn't really say anything about my faith. I can have faith and believe those two things, even though they may seem to be somewhat contradictory. They're really not. It just means that we're mortal. That's what it means. Do you think that our culture of knowing somehow um, puts us at a disadvantage because we don't, we're not given the opportunity to really explore faith? I mean, I came into the concept of faith as an adult after having said a million I knows my whole life and all of a sudden realizing, 
I didn't know anything. And that I, that faith was required to actually go through the process just to even claim God. I, I, I still don't say I know. I say I choose, I have faith that there's a God. But sometimes I wonder about that. If, if maybe just a shift in our language. Yeah, I think it, I am an attorney and so I want to speak carefully. And when you're in the courtroom and you're taking testimony under oath, you need to speak accurately and not over, not exaggerate what you know and what you don't know. When I was on my mission, Elder Brown came and he was in the first presidency and he, I must have been well into his eighties. And he stood up and he said, I know the gospel is true, but he said, brethren, I want you to know that when I was your age, I only know, knew this much of the gospel was true. And he held up his hands and he held them close together. And he says now, as he had moved his hands out further and further, he says, I know this much more of the gospel is true. And he said, there's more to know. And so I think we need to be careful about what we say we know, because if we say we know something we really don't, turns out to be false, that's damaging to people's testimonies. When Joseph Smith sent out a couple of missionaries, he gave them a revelation, and he realized that some of them had greater faith and lesser faith. And so he said to them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to teach the things that you've heard. I want you to teach the things you believe. And I want you to teach the things that you know. And I think if we had more of that with us today, and there wasn't social pressure to say more than we really know, it would be healthier. I agree with you on that. Um, I, I want to ask, I want to move into the area of your book of, about the inclusive Christ. But before we go there, I have um, one last question. And I, I just want to know from your personal perspective and, and having gone through a process where you were risking giving your children all of the information, knowing that their dominoes could fall or not. Um, you had to at least consider that there they might come to conclusions where, you know, and I'll just get, give you a few examples, um, that Joseph was a fallen prophet, that he revealed some truth and then the rest of it was bunk. You know, that, um, that there was a God, a loving God, but that Mormon Mormonism wasn't his true church revealed or, I mean, there, there's a million different stages to come to. Is there room for those kinds of conclusions in the church? Sure. Because they're all temporary. Uh, I mean, I, I look at how I thought about <clears throat> Mormonism as a young missionary and how I think about it now. It's, it, it's different, markedly different. And, uh, if my son's or daughter came to me and they didn't believe for a while, that's fine because you can change and these things do change and our opinions change and our way of looking at doctrine change. And I see them changing. I see their faith changing. My, cha my faith is, is changing, but that's part of Mormonism. It's this uh, restless, change that for the better and in order to do that you have to consider all of the options and as joseph smith expressed it sometimes you have to be willing to look into the abyss those are the words he used and so and you have to do it honestly because if you never do this honestly you'll never have a testimony because you've never done it and if you're afraid to look at it 
and you protect yourself from information, then you'll always have this nagging doubt. And so you might as well take it out, look at it, and start examining it. But you have to realize when you do this, and I'm talking now looking back over life, you have, as you do this, you have to realize that everything we believe in some respects is tentative. And so it isn't an all-or-nothing proposition to believe one day and not believe the next or believe in a different way. The only thing I think our Father in Heaven expects of us is that we're trying, that we're making the effort, that we're spiritually inquisitive, and that we're doing it in a sincere way for proper motives. And if that's happening in the end, I think it's going to be all right. Will you explore just a little more with me in terms of um, how, how you see individual families and, and church leaders, um, it's people that are teaching um, our youth, how do you see us being able to do that in a way that... Um, if it's in a safe environment, but helps them understand more of our history so that when they invariably run into it, that, that they're not going to feel like they were lied to or, or shocked, but that it's a... How do you see that? Well, I think the first responsibility is on the parents, hopefully. You know, a parent can't educate children unless they've studied these things for themselves. Well, this and, that's go a, back. and that's a huge hurdle. Yeah. Because, you know, everybody in, in the church isn't interested in church history, nor is it necessary for them to be. Because we didn't have anything to do with their salvation, per se. But, but can I kind of put, so, I mean, what most of us have is what we were raised with through primary and in the church curriculum, which, I mean, even as long ago, not that long ago, when the Brigham Young manual, priesthood study manual, I don't think it mentioned polygamy once. Right. So this is what I'm, I guess I'm talking about. It. I mean, a lot of what we have in as adults is of what the church sanctioned and taught us. And, and, I, and I guess that's where I see where we need, if we want these adults to be able to teach in their family, we need to give them the tools. Right. Since the church hasn't done this very well in my lifetime, then it was up to Judy and I to do this. But now I do think, because of Bushman's book, particularly on Joseph Smith that raises all of these things, it's going to become part of the church curriculum. And it, there, there really is a different spirit in the CES classes I teach. It used to be ten, you know, five years ago or so, when they raised these issues, I would say, let's talk about that after class, because I realized that if we began talking about it, we would never finish class. And that everybody didn't need to know that, and it would it would scare the horses if we started talking about it. But that's not true now, and so that's a positive thing. And it's going to take five five or six years for this to happen. But I would bet that this is going to be moved into our curriculum so that people know and understand these things more. And I think that's the solution ultimately. And in the meantime, we just have to encourage everybody to learn about it and think about it and feel more comfortable with our history. And so how do you, in, in our ward that we share, our ward family that I love dearly, that's what I'm asking. How do we, I mean, you're, I've heard you teach. You and Judy are wonderful teachers. You're expert teachers. That's why we've, we've had you teach how to teach. But as a young men's president, I don't have five years. I've got right now. I, I, feel, um, I feel impressed well, let me tell you what this I, needs to happen. When I was a bishop one, years ago, one of the things I did 
as I looked at my youth and I thought, I wonder what their spirit, special spiritual need is. Which ones are going to be affected by this kind of things? Which ones are not? And we set up a, a mentoring program where we ask our kids to tell me who they admired in the ward. And then I would go to that person they admired, if it was Jay Griffith, and I'd say, I want you to study with this young man or woman once a week. And so we had a mentoring program going on. And in that setting, it was easier for me to line the right people up. And oftentimes, the, the, when the boy or girl would make the request of who they wanted to study with, Judy or with me or a counselor or, J, or a Jay Griffith, they actually were gravitating to the people that had the answers to the kinds of issues and problems that they had. And so... During I, I did it. I, I did it instead of in a group. I tried to do it one on one because that's where the most effective teaching takes place anyway. Because it builds relationships, and I think that worked pretty well. And I think you don't have to do it with all of your kids. Although we tried to do it with all of our kids, we we, we did it with most of them in the ward. But in a ward setting like this, where they don't have a big program on top of every other program that church sponsors, uh, you could pick the youth out that you think are going to have a particular issue with these kinds of things. Like my own son, who was in the debate team and is an intellectual person, loves to read. Set him up with a tutor where those kinds of issues are gently explored at the level and to the extent that the student wants them to be. And I think that's a way of, of doing it. I think there's a danger uh, right now, not won't be so much in the future, of getting a class together and giving information to people who don't really care about it anyway. But don't you worry, I guess, so I, I agree with much what you said, and the new church curriculum for the, the, the youth is very much oriented that way in terms of yeah. needs of the youth, particularly in prayerfully and spirit-led doing that. But, um, you know, my, my son was always... I mean, had a cadre of friends that were rock solid. He was always rock solid. I would have never guessed that he would be now on the opposite side of the fence, atheist. Yeah. And, and then that, so that's what I'm saying. You don't know down the road. I mean, what you do know down the road is that they'll run into it, probably. Most likely, they're going to run into some of this stuff. Um, and there's there's good explanations, I think. I mean, well, I mean, there's explanations for it. Sometimes they're not always satisfying. But... but um, I, so, yeah, I'm struggling right now, I guess, trying I to figure out you. how to help you know, our youth. And I don't think it even has to be a lot of detail, but I think they ought to at least know. Well, some of the some basics. Of the basics. Yeah, I agree. The basics. They ought to know. You're getting it more in CES. I just think we're in a period of transition. Yes. And I'm, I'm suggesting that in that period of transition, it would be difficult to have a class devoted to it, but less difficult to have mentoring, sensitive mentoring taking place but eventually i hope that when we go to our classes that when we talk about joseph smith that these things will be on the table and talked about and be of far less concern you don't want to read about it for the first time in the new york times <laughs> it's a to explore that i mean i i, I would love the church to have class. I mean, even right now, classes for people who are struggling with their faith, that have faith crisis. Because I don't feel that they, f 
they're comfortable That's going to church idea. and expressing, you know, I just read great this idea. or I've, I've experienced this. And I'm really wondering, is, was Joseph Smith off base? Was he really proper? Did he fall? Or all these kind of issues. And I mean, to me, that's what church is for. It's not that we go there and hear the same stuff over again. What a great idea. I mean, not that that's not without value, particularly when it comes to the atonement in Christ. I, I mean, it's fresh to me most every week. But that you would have the opportunity, if you're questioning your faith, to feel safe in a classroom setting. You'd have like a Jim McConkie there, maybe just sitting in the audience, or you're the instructor, or a Judy, or or Sarah, that says, you know, I, I've experienced a lot of these things. I And, you know, I don't have all the answers, but this is kind of what I did. And you see what I'm saying? I, I think that would be healthy. Yeah, well, there, there are things that are happening, a thoughtful faith. <laughs> all right. Okay. I mean, this kind of discussion yeah. where... Yeah where you get people from different vantage points with different perspectives is helpful. The other thing that you can do is uh, it would be wonderful if the church had a curriculum on this. And I think it will be developed so that a bishop or a state president could say, oh, you're having those kinds of problems? Well, this is the CES class I'd like you to attend. So that the person teaching it is difficult to get experts in these areas. Another, uh, in, in every ward, it's just impossible. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's difficult to get the right teacher to handle it because the teacher, you don't have a teacher that right. can handle it. Right. I, I want to ask a question about the CES because um, I have a good friend who's, who's in CES and I asked him if the, the teachers that he works with are aware of these issues. And he said, well, they're aware that you know, people are, are going into intellectual apostasy. And I said, but are they aware of the issues surrounding, you know, their doubts and questions? And he said, no, they're, they're aware of what they're taught, which I think is, I mean, that's true, right? They're, they're aware of what they're given. And so I'm wondering if, if you know of any progress that we're making and how we're actually educating the CES instructors themselves. I, I, I don't, but this is why we need the church to develop a curriculum. I don't think there is one. And so it depends on whether you're with a CES teacher who happens to know these things or doesn't. And so I do think there's a job to be done in terms of church, church curriculum. But I think we're starting to go that direction. I mean, I think that's where we're headed. But now the question for you, Jay, is what do you do in the meantime? And I think you have a few Band-Aids that you work with. Well, I th yeah, and I, and I trust that God will will lead us and inspire us to help figure that out. Um, I just I wanted to follow up on one other thing, because this is a question I think many people um, struggle with. How It often feels like... Um, and I'm not saying that's the case, but it often feels like the church is a little behind often on these big, important issues. And and so we believe in prophecy and that these men are inspired of God. Um, and yet, whether it's, you know, race relations or homosexuality or feminism or a lot of these things where, or, or this curriculum, which, and, and I know the church is just, I mean, I've come to the resolution that, you know, God just does the best he can with what he's got. You know, I mean, he does. We're imperfect people. But how do you answer people that say, you know, so if we have prophecy and we have these prophets, why does it feel like we're always kind of behind the, 
behind the time instead of leading out, I guess, on, on a lot of these things? That's a good question. And I think, I, I mean, for me personally, uh, 1978 was a long time. And uh, I knew that Hubie Brown and others had been, and President, and the President McKay administration had been asking some of these questions, but there was no way, apparently, that it was going to gain serious consideration by their brethren. And so I guess the answer is, in my mind, because I'm an impatient person, that I have to be patient, but I think the answer is that you don't get revelation until you tee the issue up. And so, uh, for example, on, on Blackstone and the Priesthood, the brethren of, who are always older than the younger generation, I'm young, I'm 67, while well, our leaders are 80, uh, oftentimes. They come from a different era, a different culture, and they, the problem is they don't see what a tsunami is coming because they have such strong feelings that came to them through their own culture. They don't see it coming. And then when it's finally teed up and it becomes a crisis, and they ask because they really need to know, you get a revelation. Thank goodness. And I think that's just the, the, the frailties of, we're talking about the frailties of men and women. I mean, it's the same in our own lives. If things are kind of going along and there's an irritant, you just kind of keep the fly, you just move it, move it away. But when it becomes a hornet and it stings you, all of a sudden you realize, gee, there's a real problem. I had better get on my knees and sincerely ask. That's a different kind of a, a different kind of a prayer. And so, you know, the, wonder, the most wonderful thing about the gospel is we believe all that God has revealed, all that he is now revealing, and that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So we just have to say to ourselves, we're in transition. We're imperfect. The two-thirds of the Book of Mormon is going to come forward. We've got to prepare for the second coming of Christ. There's much that's going to be revealed in the future, and we just don't want to get stuck in our thinking and defend the gospel in 2013 the way we were defending it in 2000 or 1990 or 1980. We need to keep our thinking current so that we're giving our best effort to the kingdom of God. We're, 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 we're doing the best we can. And would you say that a lot of that responsibility lies with the members, wouldn't you say? Because most of this stuff has kind of grown from the bottom up to get them to tee up, right? So that we need to be feel like we can question and that we can um, come up with thoughts that might not be like you did with with your uncle that might not be the storyline at the time well that's why that's why when you asked me the question what did I think of Lester Bush that's why I'm grateful to him I think that was fair I think it was honest I, I know that there are many people who disagree with me on that but that I agree with you on that that kind of thing has to be talked about in, without going, attacking our leaders, it needs right. to be talked about, and so there is a role for for all of us to play as society and our culture changes and different issues become come to the forefront. And I think we could transition from that into yes. because what he's talking about is particularly as we view our church leaders is having I think an empathetic view for where they are. And their history and past, and and not being any more judgmental than we want to be judged ourselves, 
And how did you arrive with that in terms of your study of the Gospels and, and segueing into this book, Inclusive well, Christ? First, this is an interesting question. Early Christianity wasn't any different than what we're experiencing. I mean, Peter had to have a vision three times before he could take the Gospel to the Gentiles. He then goes out on a conference, if we're talking in Mormon parlance, and he only will sit with the Jews, and Paul uh, publicly chastises him. I mean, it isn't as though even in the, even with first-generation Christians, that they weren't experiencing the very same issues. How much are we going to sacrifice in the temple? Are we going to, how much, how are we going to be, how, what what part of the Jewish tradition is is appropriate to celebrate in this new, up-to-date Christian tradition, a Jewish tradition which develops into Christianity over time? So. I think that there's some very important parallels to be made between the church that Jesus sets up and the church that Joseph Smith sets up. And some of the same issues in different, in different contexts occur there that occur here. So if we're going to be too critical of ourselves, we're also going to be critical of the early Christians as well. So I think there's some interesting parallels to be drawn there. Let me just, I want to introduce this project a little bit more. Um, you're you're currently working on a book, right? Um, it's about the inclusive Christ. Am I getting right. that right? That's right. Yeah. And I want you to tell us a little bit about that book, and then I have some questions about okay. it. Okay. Well, let me kind of tell you this: you were talking about the spiritual journey, and I talked to you about how I felt I had to deconstruct our history and know the Prophet Joseph. And I, that phase of life took about ten years. And then my daughter came back from BYU. She'd been studying abroad there, and she went over to study the New Testament. And when she came back, I, I, and we were studying together, I was shocked at how little I knew about the historical Jesus. And she was telling me all about it, and it was a discussion that didn't just stop. I mean, we talked about this for a number of months. And I thought to myself, here I am, I know I have a great appreciation for Christ having been in the church. But I don't know who this person is. I don't know what his personality is like. I don't know what he likes. I don't know what he hates. I don't know how it would be to be with him and what he felt strongly about. And I felt like I kind of had a greeting card, a view of Jesus Christ, where you see on a Christmas card, Jesus says to love your fellow men. And nobody can disagree with that. But it's how you love them. That's where the rub is. How did Jesus love them? That's what got him crucified. <laughs> and so uh, uh, I was thinking about this, and Judy and I were in San Francisco, and we went to Grace Cathedral. And uh, it's just a wonderful cathedral on, on, Knob, on Knob Hill. And they have great, great uh, people who give sermons there because it's a, a congregation that would have that kind of thing. And... We went down to their bookstore, and uh, I found a book by Marcus Borg. And it was looking at Jesus again for the very first time. Now I explain that my title is related to this experience in, my, in the book on the Doctrine and Covenants. And he is one of 15 or so Jesus scholars who have tried to put together a historical portrait of Jesus Christ in his own context. And I started reading everything that has ever been said on this subject. And it started filling out for me 
what the character and nature of Jesus Christ was, who he was. And I could kind of put him in a setting, and if I understood the context, then what he was doing made real sense to me. Uh, and that's that, that started me off on a new journey where my focus now has not been church history, but it's turned to Jesus Christ. And the thing that's so interesting to me is that I was convinced after my you know, first part of the study on the Doctrine and Covenants in Church History, I was satisfied. Not satisfied completely, I was satisfied. But then I realized that it's possible to get a testimony of Jesus Christ without being a Mormon. Because that had never occurred to me. <laughs> because when I, when I started read, I decided I would read the four Gospels every single day. And I did for years. And I finished, go back, finish, go back. And I was so impressed with what I saw in Jesus of Nazareth that just on that record alone, I was convinced that he was the Son of God. And that was a real revelation to me. Now, I don't think I would have gotten there, but for the prophet Joseph and having been in the McConkie and, and interested in religion, and believing that Jesus appeared, that made me more interested in the subject. But where I've really found soul-satisfying satisfaction is, is, is in going to the source. And, the, and prophets, in a sense, are one step removed. And so I thought, well, let's just go to the source. Let's study his life. When, when you say source, describe, as I know you read different versions of the, of, of the Bible and the New Testament, not just the King James. Talk about your sources, if you would, just briefly. Well, I, I love the different versions of the Bible. When the Bible was originally translated, the King James Version, they had something like 20 Greek manuscripts, and today they have 5,400. And so you can really see what was at, you know, you prove Joseph Smith correct. You can see what was added, what was taken out, and they're wonderful translations. And so I like to read them because the stilted language of the King James sometimes doesn't communicate the real meaning. Do you have a favorite? Yeah, I do. What is and it? It's, not the, you know, it's the New Living. And I know there are some that are more scholarly, but I still find myself coming back to that one because it was written to be read out loud. And so when Judy and I teach our New Testament class, when you read it out loud, it has real impact. It's simple. It's direct. It's, it connects. And I like the language. In, in that particular version. But I mean, the New International Version is the one that seems to be taking over right now. But I, I find myself going back to the New Living. Yeah. So uh, that's where I've been. And this book is entitled, and I've actually got a publisher, so this is good. But this book is entitled, Whom Say Ye That I Am? A Mormon View of Jesus. And I think that Mormons who pick it up and read it will be very surprised what I think the Mormon view of Jesus is, because I don't emphasize the kinds of things that are generally emphasized. But what I do is I place Jesus in, I, I ask, how does Jesus treat rich, rich people? How does he treat poor people? How does he treat sick people? How does he treat people that are mentally disturbed? How does he interact? Why in his, in his culture was this something that you would expect? How does he treat women? What does he think about the family? That's a real conundrum. You don't see anything about eternal marriage in the four Gospels. And so this is an interesting subject on its, on, you know, it's on its own. We could, we could discuss that for a while. But what I noticed is that 
when Jesus talks to the woman at the well or the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and touches the hem of his garment, he's always so tender. The whole have not need of a physician, uh, welcoming. But where his wrath is, is kindled, it is against institutions. And there's a completely different Jesus that you see when you're talking about the Romans, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And he hates systemic injustice. And what I mean by that are people who grind the faces of the poor, who take advantage of their neighbor and are in a system where you can appear to be righteous and actually are personally righteous, but by being in the system itself, you are disadvantaging or disenfranchising large groups of God's children. And when Jesus talks about those subjects, he talks about snakes, vipers, uh, dead men's bones covered in, in, uh, in, 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 in good clothing. I mean, and, and so I see this Jesus who's very real to me now. And I can see what, if he came, I think I see better, if he came into our own culture, he would not just be giving a calm talk at conference. I mean, you have to remember that this is the Jesus who overturns the tables in the temple. And the reason he does is because they're selling the, the birds and the doves and the sheep for sacrifice at 10, times the, 10 to 15 times the price that you can buy those very same animals for off-premises, and then that money goes to those who run the temple. Well, that's what he's angry about. That's one of the things he's angry about, angry enough that he, he actually physically removes them. And so I get excited about this Jesus. This is, a, this is a person that I can worship. Let me ask this question. Mm -hmm. Did you ever at some point connect with the larger Christian well, I, I've connected with some of them, particularly those in the Anglican faith, because they've done such a wonderful job of this. But, you know, this contextualization of Jesus in a historical setting is something that has been done by the scholars in the last 15 years. I don't think it's been appreciated by any of the other religions, particularly, any better than our own. And so um, I think that there is guilty of seeing Jesus uh, one-dimensionally, as, as we are. I think that the issue of why we're not Christians is, is because we don't believe in the same God. I mean, Christianity, their God is, was defined in Nicaea. It is a product of Greek thinking, and um, it is Neoplatonistic, and it has nothing to do with the four Gospels. And so they believe in a God. They worship a God that I think is the wrong God. And so I don't want to be a Christian because I worship this person who I've been reading about who was resurrected and still has his body and isn't three in one. And that, that concept of a God leads me different places. So when you say you don't want to be a Christian, what you're talking about is you don't want to be the type of Christian that is... I don't want to believe in Council of Nicaea. I don't want to believe in a God that doesn't have a body. I don't. That's not... And, you know, this is a very important issue because if you believe that God has an exalted body, that leads you to an entirely different theology. It defines the connection you have with God. It defines who you are. 
I mean, it's the, in the King Follett Discourse, the first principle of the gospel is to know the character of God and that we can speak to him as one man speaks to another. Well, all of these things define who we are and what our relationship is and where we're going. That is that, that concept is lost on the Christian world, except in a metaphorical way. So let me ask a question about grace. Let's, let's, let's talk about grace for a moment, because I think also one of the, the major separations between um, Mormons, everyday, normal, regular LDS people, is that we don't do a lot of grace talk, right? We, we kind of stay away from that. We're, we, we like our works <laughs> a little bit better than we like our grace. And the rest of the Christian world is really big on grace. Where did Jesus stand? I think the Christian world is off in the Neverland on this. Okay, tell us, tell us I what mean, you think. And I know that Jay and I disagree. <laughs> you cannot find in the four Gospels much discussion on the atonement and grace. The word grace doesn't even exist there. Every time someone comes to Jesus, the rich man, for example, and they say, what must we do to be saved? Jesus doesn't talk about grace. It's not even an issue. The rich man says, well, I'm living the t Ten Commandments. And then Jesus says to him, well, how about living the law of consecration and give all of your goods to the poor and come follow me? And he fails that test. But Jesus, when he talks about salvation, whether it's the sheep and the goats, or whenever the issue is raised, says that individuals can contribute to their own salvation. Now, there are two or three scriptures in Mark and Matthew, I think in Matthew, where he says, I've come as a ransom to save many. But that's it. And so the person who gets us off on grace is Paul. Now, that's not to say that the atonement isn't important, that we couldn't be saved without it, but it's done. It's over with. It is finished. It's available. And so what Jesus is saying, I've done that. It's over. All you need to do is change and repent, and then you can take advantage of it. And as long as you're trying to change, then you can progress and become more like God. But in my own view, the spirit of Mormonism is not tied up in the evangelical grace doctrine. And so I feel, I feel from studying those four Gospels that we've kind of drifted over to a Protestant interpretation of Jesus. So we're, we're doing what the Protestants do. They study Paul. And then they interpret Jesus through the eyes of Paul. And I think you have to study Jesus and then interpret Paul through the eyes of Jesus. And you come to very different places because all of this talk, in my view, in the letters about grace and the law are all centered around the oral law and not the Ten Commandments. And that's a long discussion, and I, I can't get into it because we couldn't finish it. But I'm just saying that I think that the spirit of Mormonism when I was younger, and as I see it coming from the prophet Joseph Smith, is not atonement, atonement, atonement. It's the atonement is finished. We thank God for it. Now we can contribute to our salvation because we're children of God. We have that capacity within us. And so we can do these things. Can, I'm, can I, wait, hold on. One question. And 
I'm going to give you a big pushback here. Oh, I know you already have a pushback. Lots of my, lo- <laughs> you can give them, you lo- can give, this, the, this pushback is, it's, it's a Lots of my Mormon friends disagree with me on it. So. Well, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to use this argument that you're making to mirror a different argument. And I just want to see how you respond to this. But, um, Mormonism does not stick to what Christ taught. We, we take the liberty of adding a whole chunk to salvation and exaltation. If you read in the Book of Mormon, and I assume you go into the four Gospels, there is no temple in terms of additional ordinances. There is no sense of exaltation. Christ is very plain in the Book of Mormon when he says, hey, this is it, right? Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. And he is... And he even goes as far in the Book of Mormon to say, and there is nothing added to this. And if anybody adds anything to this, they are wrong. But we do. We add and add and add. So I'm just listening to you. You you say, we take Paul and we interpret Christ through the lens of Paul. And you disagree there. But don't we take Joseph? And, oh, great question. And Brigham Young and interpret Christ and salvation through the lens of those prophets in yeah, Mormonism. We, we absolutely do. And first of all, I disagree that deification is not taught by Jesus. And it is taught so plainly in the Sermon on the Mount. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, the modern translations are better on this and more Mormonesque. If you look at the new living on this subject, it says you may become perfect even as your father is perfect. So instead of making it sound like an instantaneous process, be perfect, it says it's a process of becoming. Uh, now, Jesus teaches this in at least two or three other places clearly in the four Gospels, most plainly in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. So I think you find deification there. And I don't have any doubt about it because that idea ended up being an idea that Paul, in his discussion of joint airship, which comes up over and over and over again in the letters, I mean, we know that Paul is talking about it constantly, and I don't think he would have been had it not been part of the early Christian tradition, and I think it goes right back to Jesus' fundamental teaching on the subject in the Sermon on the Mount. So I have to I have to demur on that. Okay, what do you what do you think about the scriptures then in the Book of Mormon where he okay. says don't add anything to this? This is a conundrum because it also says that in the Doctrine and Covenants, and you kind of look at Mormonism as the Mormon Church in Kirtland, and then the Mormon Church in Nauvoo, and then you ask yourself the question: Well, how do the two meet, and where do they marry? And I think the question is more complicated than you are suggesting, and this is why. We know now from Margaret Barker and from other New Testament scholars that there, and the 40-day documents, that there was a ceremony that was similar to ours. Now, the early church taught that the endowment came on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then we have found documents that talk about endowment-like things, prayer circles and other things, in the 40-day documents, and we can get on the Internet and look them up. And if you look at Cyril's lectures on Jerusalem and other things like that, you find all kinds of things that are interesting to Mormons. And so I think early Christianity had more of this stuff. Give, give the audience a little, bit of, a little bit more of what you're talking about. Give an example. Okay. Uh, take, for example, uh, the prayer circle. 
uh, in Acts, the first chapter, the third verse, Jesus says he came back and he spent 40 days as a resurrected person teaching the saints. We know during that 40-day period that he came to the new world. And so the question is, well, what was he teaching? Well, there are a whole group of documents that purportedly tell us. I mean, you can argue with the whether they're accurate or not, but you can do that with the four Gospels as well. What are the origins? I, I have to be honest. I don't know anything about this. Well, the, the, these 40-day documents are like the Apocrypha, like the Pseudepigrapha, like the Dead Sea Scrolls. They're ancient documents, and they claim to tell what Jesus taught during that 40 days before he ascended. How old are these? Well, they date back to the time, most of them after Christ, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, uh, some, some closer. How complete are they? Well, they're reasonably, I mean, there, there, there are hundreds of pages of these, and uh, uh, one of the ones that Nibley puts in the back of his book, um, Joseph Smith, the Egyptian Endowment, in his appendix, is Cyril's Lectures on Jerusalem. And he talks about the initiatory rites in early Christianity, the, the Bishop Cyril of Jerusalem. And you're, you're washed, you're clothed, you're anointed, you go through a ceremony that begins with Adam, uh, you Im become imitators of Adam, you go into a prayer circle, you uh, speak the prayer back in unison. Uh, I mean, you have all of these documents, which may be, some scholars would say, apostate versions or non-Orthodox, proto-Orthodox versions of Christianity. And that's what they say. That's what the Catholics say. But they also might be accurate representations of Christianity. And if you believe the prophet Joseph Smith, if you work backwards and you say, well, I'm willing to accept the fact that if Joseph Smith restored it, then I should find it. And you then begin finding some of these, you begin finding some of these things, then it's faith affirming. And so I think part of the answer is, is that there is more there than is generally believed. But clearly, in the, in the, in the Book of Mormon, except maybe Alma 13, where it talks about Melchizedek and the priesthood and the pre-existence, and you have references that sound temple-like to Latter-day Saints, uh, what we first got was just a beginning of what Joseph Smith had to offer. But I think some of that, um, I think it's actually in early Christianity. My, um, my uh, I guess, take or issue with what you say is, is that it, it seems to totally disregard the Book of Mormon. I reread that over and over, like you do, I guess, the... The, the four Gospels, not with the brilliant mind you have, unfortunately. No, I don't memory. say that. But, I mean, you can open from the first page of the Book of Mormon, and it, it talks about Christ's vital role as our Savior in atonement. I mean, it really does. I mean, it's saturated with the atonement of Christ. And and says very point blank in a number of places that, I mean, we're nothing without him. We're lost without him. Um. And so when you take that in context, I, I guess unless you, you know, and I don't think you feel this way, but do not believe that book accurately represents what Joseph Smith said it does, or um, I, I just, was, I find it difficult to, to to justify, I guess, some of the things you just said. I, I, I don't know. I, I think that, that element in the, you know, whatever we want to call that element, grace, it's just the word that's been used, but the inability for us to navigate ourselves and, and breach that huge chasm between where we are as mortals, incredibly imperfect mortals, 
and into godhood to to divinity that that we can somehow earn our way to do that um you know i, okay. I don't see a way to justify that okay here that's great because i have i talk about this in the book and i think in, what, in which book in the book i'm writing okay the book you're writing because i i talk about is there a book of mormon view of christ and is there a view in the doctrine and covenants of who christ is and it's not that i would say that the atonement which is mentioned 15 times though in the in the in the book of mormon isn't there but the but but the emphasis we're placing on it today is out of proportion to what's there so i went through and i read every passage on Christ in the Book of Mormon. There's a lot. And there's a lot of stuff on Christ. But when you read it, it is very even-handed. In other words, it talks about that he's born, that he comes into the world, that he came here to do miracles, that he suffered from the things of the flesh, that he died on the cross, and the atonement. And the best statements on the atonement are Alma 15 and, 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 and Alma and in, in Nephi. Okay, and so there's a discussion on it. And uh, but it's 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 what I called an even-handed view. In other words, it touches on everything. It doesn't single something out and then put the entire emphasis there. So it, and invariably, his accounts in the Book of Mormon end with a comment on the resurrection, which is really the emphasis of the. If you wanted to say what is the theme, what is the most important thing that happens in the New Testament in the four Gospels, you wouldn't say atonement. You'd probably say he died on the cross and ransomed us, but he was resurrected. I mean, the early church was focused on the fact that he was resurrected. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, Jay, it's not that it isn't there. It is. But it's in. It's listed with all of these other things so that you have kind of an even-handed view of Christ's entire mission, and we're not just kind of forgetting that and focusing on the atonement alone. Now, why is that important in my mind? If you emphasize the atonement too much, you end up like Jonathan Edwards. You don't believe you're capable of anything. You feel guilty about everything. And you're kind of a poor groveling soul hanging on a slender thread with a fire burning that's going to drop you into the jaws of hell. And so it's the emphasis that I'm concerned about. Because by emphasizing the fact that we can do nothing, and grace is the answer to everything, we're really missing the true message of Mormonism, which is we are gods in embryo. That we have his DNA in us, and that he did the atonement, but that we have the capacity to become like him. In Protestant theology, you get saved so that you can be sinful and still be in God's presence. In Mormonism, you realize you have to, over time, perfect yourselves so that you can become a god, because God, by definition, has to be perfect. And if I just interrupt, I, and I don't disagree with that. I, I just think that perfection process is, is, is not just an act that happened. I mean, I think that atonement, that, that act of God's grace, or however you want to say it, is a continuing element in our lives. And, and it is not either or. I mean, obviously in the New Testament it debates the same thing, works and grace. But, um, um, so I don't disagree with, with, with that element. I, I just think, we have, you know, the hubris that we have to struggle with at times, and I think that's why God made it the way he did, is that we, we don't do it on our own. But what the atonement does, Jay, is it allows us to take the exam until we get 100%. 
It allows us to fail and retake the exam, but it doesn't excuse us from the arduous work of perfecting our characters. I agree. Because in, in Protestant theology, the purpose of grace isn't to make us into gods. The purpose of grace is so that you can be sinful and be in the presence of God. It's a completely different thing. And I, I think when you emphasize that, it takes us in the direction of Calvinism. And that's why I get exercised about this, because I can <laughs> sure. live a lot happier life believing that if I repent, my sins are taken care of, and that I really do have the capacity to do certain things, than I can thinking, I am such a poor, groveling soul, a sinner in the eyes of an angry God, that I just have to depend on grace, and, and that's it. I, I can't do much for myself. And so it's a matter It's not very motivating emphasis. for you. <laughs> it's, it's not very motivating. So it's a matter, I think we're talking really about a matter of emphasis. Right. Let me ask another question here. Um, I want to go to this word inclusion. One of the biggest struggles for people that face, that face um, crisis with more, you know, their faith in Mormonism is that they get really, really weary and tired of the idea that we're better than everyone else, that only Mormons have the capacity to perfect themselves through ordinances. And this gets back to that. Um, and, and your, you know, uh, your point about there are evidences of ordinances, um, in, in works outside of the Bible and that can be read into certain passages. But how does this picture of an inclusive Christ um, relate to the exclusion of people from exaltation outside of Mormonism? And I know that there's the caveat that we die and the work can be done for everyone, but that's hard for people to accept that, you know, they look around and they see other people in other religions or in other faith traditions or, or even outside of faith traditions that are doing the same work we're doing. That that put in just as much effort, that are as good in their souls, and who are as maybe um, worshipful or even respectful of mankind, worshipful of God and respectful of mankind. How is that inclusive? I just want mm -hmm. you to kind of talk to those two okay, ideas. Okay, well, if you were to say to me, having spent some time, not as much as many, but some time in the four Gospels, what is the what is the what are the two characteristics of Jesus that motivates him in almost in every situation almost it would be compassion and inclusion so he includes the sinner he includes the prostitute he includes women in ways that his society never could tolerate many women followed Jesus they supported him they traveled with him he spoke with them this was all counter to his culture and so I think you would have to say that uh, he was inclusive and he was compassionate. Now, the, the problem in Mormonism is, is that we're very focused on the, on the nuclear family. And the nuclear family is a great thing because they have to be strong. But they're a product of the 1950s. I mean, the nuclear family is an accident in history. And so when Jesus is, is asked the question... Explain, explain <laughs> that a little bit okay. more. <laughs> well, if you, I know what you're saying, but... Yeah, you're, well, if you look at the history, there, there's a wonderful book called The History of the American Family. The nuclear family develops in a time when we have comparative wealth in the United States, where the father could leave the home and work outside the home, and the mother then could use her skills in the home. Almost in every other period of history, 
That just isn't the case, and it isn't now, because we're pressed economically, and the, quote, nuclear family, the ideal family, it no longer... It's getting smaller and smaller. Okay. Well, it was much more multi-generational, yeah, kind of like and, what you've developed yeah. in your living Well, room. for example, in Jesus' day, what was the family like? Well, the term nuclear family wasn't used in the United States until 1924. So Jesus had no concept of a nuclear family. Joseph Smith didn't have a concept of a nuclear family. Abraham didn't have the concept of a nuclear family. His family was defined differently. So what I'm saying is... That it is a good thing that we emphasize the nuclear family because it needs to be strong. And it is kind of the bulwark against the winds of the world. But what Mormonism is trying to do is it's not trying to save the nuclear family. It's trying to save the human family. And the, the point of all of this is that you've got to have strong nuclear families, but they're all hooked together into God's family. And in Mormonism, that idea is played out in ceilings because we seal this chain, this human family. And so when you when Christ talks about the family, he's not talking about a nuclear family or an extended family or an intergenerational family. His focus is on saving everyone because we're all brothers and sisters, literally children of God. And so I understand why we have to focus on the nuclear family, but it blinds us to what we're really doing and what the temple is all about. It's about it's about saving the entire human family. That's the most inclusive concept of the family that you could have because we are all related as brothers and sisters and should treat each other that way. There's an interesting question in terms of what what do we offer that that um, other religions don't. And, and I, I think it would go back maybe partly to your concept of which Joseph Smith revealed, being God's an embryo, which is a very unique thought really in pretty much any philosophy out there. But that's what we're here for. Um, and that we have at least some basic things that, that can help you get to that point. But I know there is an uncomfortable f- feeling, too, with... And I, I felt fortunate to have, you know, have a father who was very inclusive in his beliefs because we know, I mean, we know on one level, if you ask an LDS person, that we don't have all the truth. And yet, we often act in a very different way that we do, that, that we, that God kind of just speaks to us. And, and you know, when you listen to General Conference, you really don't get that sense because they're quoting Emily Dixon and everybody in between, you know, and C.S. Lewis. So it, it, it doesn't always come top down like that, but I think we do settle into this... Um, almost narcissistic way of thinking that we embody all truth. And and yet, most truth, I think, lies outside the church. I mean, if you're talking about scientific truth and all that stuff, you know, most of it's outside our little nucleus. Um, so, again, I guess, how would you define what that nucleus is? What What is it that we offer that's so unique and special that... That, that would, would help. Okay. I think it's our, our, our dedicated role to prepare for the second coming. Okay, But I'll tell you the thing that Mormonism offers that no other religion offers, in my mind. And a, a friend of mine, Doug Parker, who was a professor at BYU, was on his way. He was teaching in Boulder at the law school there. And he was with one of his non-Mormon friends who was an atheist. 
and they were talking about religion. And he said to Doug, who's a dear, dear friend of mine, he said, Doug, you tell me in 10 minutes something about God, because I know you believe in him, that is really meaningful. What's the most meaningful thing that you can tell me about God? And Doug thought for a moment, and he said, God is an exalted man. And that one truth is worth the entire restoration because it redefines who we are and what we're going to become and what our relationship is to each other. And it helps us understand that all of us are the literal spiritual offspring of deity and have capacities that we know not of at this point. And so for me, that is an important message. It's the important message that we offer the world. But it's not necessary for everybody to get it right now. I mean, we're all going to move in this direction. Joseph Smith said in the King Follow uh, Address, he said, how long is it going to take us to become gods and goddesses after we leave this life? Millions of years. But it's this journey, this understanding of what we're becoming that makes life so worthwhile and the understanding that we have of physical relationships and family relationships and what it means to have a body and relate to each other and to relate to a father who's personal and not distant. How do you love a principal? You love an individual. We love the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't love his gospel. We love him. We love his gospel. That's a sidelight. We love him. We love his character. We love who he is. And the gospel's tied up in that idea, God is an exalted man. And I, and I like what you just segued into, because to know his character is not just to know what he is, but that he, to sound very simple, is a God of love. Yeah. Which goes back to your inclusive Christ, right. I think, and where we as LDS people, if we can expand that, you know, and are much, much beyond our, our ward families. Yeah. Every our religion family. has a tendency to become spiritually xenophobic. <laughs> We're not the only ones. That's <laughs> true. No, that's very yeah. true. That's a good point. That's right. It's very common. We're going to wrap up soon, but okay. I, I, I wanted to just um, ask this question, and this, this goes back to the beginning of the podcast. It's just a personal point of interest for me. But um, I, I, um, one of the stories that has circulated through our family about Bruce R. McConkie is um, we have a friend of the family who's very good friends with the Paces. And um, that whole little debacle <laughs> uh, has come up, obviously, in conversation. And one of the stories that has gotten um, passed around is is how um, Bruce R. McConkie apologized to George Pace near the end of his life. Um, and, you know, who knows if that's apocryphal or not. But we, we, um, we like to think that that's true. But it, it gets to this discussion on Christ because the the whole situation that happened there was was over a disagreement about how Christ should be viewed and approached whereas George Pace was advocating for a very personal relationship with Christ even to be able to pray to Christ I think he 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 voiced it more like you pray through Christ but that he he was really um you know, pushing this idea of a personal savior that you could know and love and a big brother figure. And um, Bruce R. McConkie was not fond of that idea at all and, and was very public in his criticisms of George. And I think he said, um, 
you know, that that was sectarian nonsense. And, um, and also he, he said that we should hold Christ up more in a kind of like as a reverent, at a reverent distance. So I want to know, did, did Bruce R. McConkie have the same, did he get into the historical Christ? Did he study these, the, these same, you know, authors and Christian authors outside of Mormonism? And did that somehow contribute to this less personal? Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? What well, was his comfort? I do know that he read widely outside of Mormon sources because I had a discussion with him where he told me about that. I don't think that he was, was familiar with the last 15 years where the historical Jesus has been emphasized. But I do think that even members of his family who loved him, love him w- would admit that he could uh, kill a fly with a sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in that way be misunderstood. And I think that what he was trying to do, and I don't know about this story, I hope it's true, but uh, uh, I think that what he was trying to do was, was emphasis again. And we, I mean, President Faust uh, talked about a personal relationship with Jesus. We know that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus, although it, is, it sa- sounds very Protestant. And that always makes one nervous. But um, I think that, that what he was trying to say, as I read him, is that Jesus was responsible to his Father. We worship the Father in the name of the Son. And everything, every time, remember when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? He prayed vocally, and he said, I'm praying vocally so that the people might know that what I'm going to do isn't me, it's you, Father. And then he walks into the tomb, and Lazarus comes out. Well, everything he does in those four Gospels is to honor his Father. He even calls himself imperfect in comparison to the Father. And then he tells us that if you want to know who the Father is, then you can know what his character is like, because I reflect it. And I think Bruce was just concerned that in Protestant thinking, it doesn't matter whether you worship the Holy Ghost, the Father, or the Son. It's all three in one. But it does matter to Mormons in a way, because our focus is on Elohim, who is separate and apart from Jesus, who came to do the wishes of his father and to glorify his father, he said. And so I think it was probably troublesome to him because it didn't square with what Jesus himself was saying about his relationship with the father. It seemed to be downplaying who God the father is. Do you, from a personal perspective, how do you identify with God? I mean, I hear that you're saying, what you're saying doctrinally, it matters to Mormons, but for me, a transcendent experience is not defined by whether it comes from God or Christ or the Holy Ghost. A transcendent experience is with God. And I am really generally unconcerned in that moment right, right. about the avenue or the being that sure. I'm interacting with. Right. So I'm wondering for you, does it matter? And has studying Christ and coming to this new understanding of Christ, has that changed the way you personally feel you're interacting with God, or have you shifted from God the Father to Christ, or from Christ to the Father? Do you know what I'm asking? I know, I know what you're asking, and I don't think it has affected me in that way, because what it, what my study of Jesus has done, I hold him in reverence and awe when I see what kind of a person 
he was in the context of his times. It's over. It, it is overwhelming when you see the context of his times and what these what these acts of his meant to that culture and that type and kind of a culture. But if you say to a Mormon, "Well, what is your experience with God?" The God we know best is the Holy Ghost. All of us. And so I don't know Jesus personally. I don't know Elohim personally. The God that I am most familiar with is the Holy Ghost. And so if you ask me, where am I receiving comfort? Where am I receiving spiritual experience from? The gifts of the Spirit, all of those things. It's coming through the third member of the Godhead. And so I think, if you ask me, where we're, where we're falling down is we're not thankful enough to the third member of the Godhead, who is almost unmentioned. And yet that is the member of the Godhead that is specifically assigned to tutor us, to comfort us, to strengthen us. And yet we rarely speak his name. Um, I just want to thank you for, for letting us come into your home and talk to you. This has been wonderfully fascinating. I'm, I've been really privileged to be here. And I also want to thank Jay for setting this interview up and for participating and helping to have this discussion. So thank you both. And um, if our listeners are interested, you can buy the Doctrine and Covenants book. Oh, What's it called? Yeah, you can. It's looking at the Doctrine and Covenants for the very, very first time. It's sold at Deseret Book, uh, BYU Bookstore. And Amazon. And Amazon and uh, and on Barnes & Noble. But the one that I really like you to buy it from, if anybody wants to buy it, is Benchmark. Benchmark. Good for you. Okay. Support your my friends at Benchmark. <laughs> great, great. So you can go to Benchmark yeah. and buy it through Benchmark as well. And then also look forward to the coming book um, and tell us the title one uh, more time. Uh, whom Say Ye That I Am, A Mormon View of Jesus. Tell us who's publishing this book. Oh, well, Coford. Colfer book. Yeah. Great. Well, I'm, I'm really delighted that they're interested enough to start down the path. Wonderful. Yeah. So look forward to that. And thank you again. And thank hopefully you. we'll be able to sit down with your wife soon. Yes, and I, I can so. ask her that question I about the gender of the Holy Ghost. Yeah, I will listen to you. <laughs> thank you, Sarah. Nice to be with you. All right. Thank you. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. How great it is.
See you.